0: Reef Therapy by Reef Builders is brought to you by ICP Analysis. What's in your water?
1: What's going on Mark? How you been, man? I've been good, man.
0: Looking forward to uh, another session of reef therapy.
1: Yeah, I think a uh, weekly cadence is very good for the reef aquarium soul. Yeah. You told me your, uh, your col hang uh, had a little run-in with the convict tang, or vice versa.
0: Yeah, he beat the crap out of my convict. Uh, I mean, they're getting along again, so it happened when I wasn't looking, but he's got a nice one-inch gash on the side of him. But he's swimming around and eating, so I'm not gonna pull him and medicate him or anything like that, I'll just keep a
1: close eye on him. Yeah, no, that's important. I, I definitely do a lot of observation, sometimes you see something in reef fish that you really feel like you should do something, but I, you know, I just kind of wait until it reaches that point where, like, all right, that fish needs some TLC. I think yeah. your fish will be fine. I have plenty of tanks that have gotten gashes over the years, and uh, they go away real fast.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was just, uh, you know, you go check on your tank, look around, see if anything's unusual.
1: And I was like, ooh, dang. So so we have a great um, topic for everyone today about reef. Aquarium misconceptions, and um, it's kind of astonishing how much information we think our gospel that have not really stood up to critical um, examination.
0: Yeah, uh, you know it's the thing about the internet is it definitely gives you access to a lot of information, but it also gives you a lot of access to misinformation and uh without that editorial factor there's also that repetition of information right people just they hear something and then they repeat it to the next person the next person and it becomes uh it becomes a gospel or whatever you want to call it
1: yeah um before we get started I'll rarely do this, but I want to plug the brand new Coral Finder 2021 edition. People are always asking, how do I identify my corals? This is a great guy that um, has been worked on by Russell Kelly. I actually dove with him a couple years ago on the Great Barrier Reef. And um, this is not going to tell you any goofy names. It's not going to tell you any made up names. These are the actual scientific names. And so in previous years, um, he used uh charlie varen's pictures from corals of the world but he's just gone out of his way to create his own photographs to really illustrate the differences between some of the common and obscure genera of stony corals so definitely go to uh, byoguides.com and check it out if you really want to learn something about stony corals from the indo-pacific so i
0: got mine in the mail yesterday oh you did awesome what did you think oh i like it yeah i ordered it and uh I, I, I thought it was going to come all the way from Australia for some reason, um, but it uh, shipped US, so it arrived very quickly. Uh, I was pleasantly
1: surprised. Russell Kelly, um, he's been working at this. I think this is the fourth one, but he's going to start doing like an annual edition. And he told me that now he's got a kind of a new publisher that has 11 presses all over the world. Um, So yeah, I ordered mine and I got it within a few days. I was quite surprised. Um, I just, I want to let people know we're not going to be plugging stuff all the time, but I feel like that's a really useful tool for identifying the real names of aquarium corals. So, um, all right. You ready to get started on some reef aquarium misconceptions? Let's do it. This one
0: will be uh, this will be a fun one.
1: It'll be a fun one because for like 10 to 15 to 20 years I'm like, "No, that's not true. That's not true." And there's like there's definitely a lot of things people think they know about the reef aquarium hobby that they want to believe. They want to believe that this bottle of miracle cure is going to be the silver bullet. They want to believe that ABC fish eats XYZ pest, and it's just not true. So the first misconception I want to bring up is that reef aquariums are hard. What do you say about that, Mark?
0: I think there is. Um, <clears throat> I mean, they they'll always have their trials and tribulations, right? Uh, it's it's rare for your tank not to be. You know, I, I don't know. You you have those moments of autopilot, but you're you're always going to have your little battles with something, but. I think it is as complicated or as hard as you make it. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, what you choose to keep, uh, what size it is, everything, right? And I definitely feel like if I was a newbie jumping in and, you know, I start watching a bunch of videos and seeing people with their setups, I would, uh, you know, we've all been there where the non-saltwater hobbyist comes to your house and goes, oh, I've always heard those uh, saltwater tanks are hard. And I think if you were a newbie and you saw some of the plumbing and, and all the gadgetry on, on tanks lately, you would also be under that impression because there's complexity, complexity in learning all those additional gadgets, right? A calcium reactor is not a very simple thing, right? You're, you're, you're putting CO2 into a semi-pressurized chamber and you're doing a drip rate and bubble, you
1: know. so The funny thing about a calcium reactor is if you have a calcium reactor, you can't do anything with it. Right, You need media, you need a CO2 tank, yeah. you need a pressure regulator, you need a solenoid valve, you need a pH controller with a pH probe, maybe even a dosing pump to feed it. But we, we approach all those things one at a time, but if you set yeah. up a basic tank with no filter, a little bit of water flow, a heater and some light, your zoanthas are never gonna give you problems. Right. If you set up a similar tank with just an anemone of pair of clownfish, Man, you're going to be bored with that tank. It's just going to look beautiful. You're not going to have to do anything. And when you get bored with it, then you start
0: diving into the more complexity of, you know, setting up things like, you know, I find adding this A and B solution every few days drives me kind of crazy. Oh, well, you can set up a dosing pump. Oh, what's that? Or, or you know, and then you go down that path of, of learning the more complex intricacies of how you can, you know set up an a, a saltwater aquarium further but to your point you don't need all of that you could set up a great tank with some very hardy corals with
1: very minimal effort and by and large the reef aquarium hobby 90 plus percent of reef aquariums are trying to recreate something very unnatural right mm-hmm. we're trying to keep soft corals on the left stony corals at the top lps at the bottom all kinds of fish and corals that do not come from the same environment that's where the issues come right Mm -hmm. i have a dedicated Euphilia tank that thing is dialed in you know all my acros i don't try to keep any trackies or scolimias in there because that's that would just be so hard so yeah reef aquariums are definitely not hard it's like you said it's it's what you make of it all right, how about the next one? and this is one that's oh man, this is a whole can of worms, but the fact that before someone is instructed on how to keep a reef tank, they had got to have to have, have to have a crash course in water purification. <laughs> There's absolutely this notion that you have to have a reverse osmosis unit to have a saltwater tank.
0: yeah, I think that's one of those perfect examples of. People don't like to dive into the particulars. So a blanket answer is is uh, is the easiest path where um, if you don't need an RO unit, um, you know, it's not necessarily gonna help or hurt you from where you you know, from you know, whether you treat it or not. You know, I mean if you have pretty good water quality and you could just get by with less. So if you take 30 people and you don't say, well, you need to dive into the particulars. Let's talk about what type of water is coming into your house. You know, are there any seasonal changes, this and that? um, That gets complicated. Whereas if you just tell everybody, yeah, you need an RO unit, whether you need it or not, it's a blanket answer. But I agree with you because it's again, it's a complex thing to
1: deal with. Uh, It's expensive. I mean, relatively speaking, a mid range reverse osmosis unit could cost you as much as a basic mm, small reef tank.
0: Yeah, and I, I said that in our last uh, uh, reef therapy that I always said with nanos, you know, in the evaporation right. When I'm thinking of a kid getting into the hobby, it's kind of a hard sell to convince mom and dad to set up an R- reverse osmosis unit. I think. I mean, I'm sure plenty do, but. um, it's it's a it's a tricky sell I think to to have to deal with that.
1: It's it's a learning curve before you can get started on your aquarium. So just for the record, you know, you and I uh, started out at a time when reverse osmosis units were like very specialized. They were like, you know, very expensive, especially as a, a youngster, and very complicated, and you might flood and so many other things, but. So I think we have a different point of view as far as like starting out with our tap water purifiers. I know I we talked those. about this a little bit, yep. um, but I, I, my water is pretty pure. You know, I have two ppm of silicates. I have uh, a little bit of calcium, a little bit of magnesium, um, and I get pulses of copper. And instead of setting up an RO unit, I just set up a bunch of carbon blocks almost everything you want to remove, that you really have to remove, any kind of heavy metals, um, uh, carbon's gonna take care of it. I know a lot of people are concerned maybe about like phosphates in your water, and uh, okay, that might be one of those cases, but that information is widely available now on the internet. You can actually go to your your specific municipality of water uh, treatment and, and find out what's in your water before you get into an, a reverse osmosis unit.
0: Yeah, I mean, I my pre RO water is uh, twenty parts per million TDS. I don't know what is in that TDS, right? I don't know what it's comprised of. I've been wanting to get it tested. Uh, my my local water supply doesn't get too into the details of of mm-hmm. what's in the tap, but and then there's the factor of okay, that's the water treatment plant, but by the time it gets to my house, goes through my plumbing. You know what else is is added. But um, I've always been curious to see like, do I really need this thing or could I get away with uh, some carbon blocks with you know, 20 parts per million? Uh, I, I do think my water's high in iron uh, mm-hmm. because of where I live. We got a lot of red carbon, clay around carbon. here.
1: That is but the yeah. most effective way to take out iron. But the other thing with the RO is people assume that a reverse osmosis is absolute but it works on percentages. So if you have high copper or high iron or high phosphate, you're still gonna have a percentage of that getting through. And you know, it's like, all right, well then you add a DI, you know, anion, cation, mixed bed resin to your, after your RO, but then now you're adding a whole bunch more complexity where it's like, you could fix that with just the carbon, just the carbon.
0: Yeah. I I agree. My new tank that still hasn't come yet, but uh, I've debated: do I just fill it up with tap water, and then um, I've got some old uh, RO housings, right? Pre-filter housings, and I could Mm -hmm. just throw some carbon in one and throw maybe some twenty-dollar DI resin in the other, and run it for a couple of days with a powerhead. You know, while the tank. That's another
1: one that just seems like you're not really connecting the dots when you set up a brand new tank with purified water the whole point of a new tank in order to get the cycle going is you kind of need to get it dirty you're going to be doing a lot of processing before you put anything in there so just fill it up with tap man (laughs) just fill it up with tap but it's always just sat very strangely with me that seawater is well known to have every pretty much every single element on the periodic table and we go to such great lengths to strip everything out just so we can add it back in and i get it maybe you know if you have very high very hard water a lot of calcium a lot of carbonates in your water if you use a readily available salt mix um, you might have be starting out with you know very elevated levels um, but that should be taken by on a case by case basis and not a blanket. Oh, you need an RO purifi- purification center.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think if people are willing to get into the particulars, you know, look at what your tap water analysis looks like, uh, maybe evaluate if there's seasonal changes like spring runoff and stuff that maybe brings in some extra factors that you're worried about. Um, and 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 then make a decision based on that, but don't go on the gospel that everybody needs to purify their water, right? And that's why you see like threads online where people are like, oh, I run my tank on tap water and it's like, oh, you're such a rebel. And it's like, well, it probably works for him. It may not work for the next person depending on their water source, but they're, neither person is wrong, you know, or, or, or in a bad place to set up a reef tank. You just, you may need it, you may not it's a decision um
1: that's a great point though you talk about seasonal changes so you know before i started up the studio i set my water off for icp testing a few different places you know they concurred on the um uh the the silicate level in my water but none of them showed the copper it took me a while to figure out they had a copper and that was coming in pulses and i don't know what where it's coming from. Again, it's seasonal, it's like very intermittent. And I'm like, you know what, screw it. I'm just gonna use a ton of carbon blocks. <laughs> so that works for me. All right, you got any other misconceptions? Uh, you wanna take the next next misconception? You got one at the top of your brain?
0: Um, I've got a couple. Uh, I don't, this goes a little bit back to um, the naming conventions of corals, but more generic in the sense that uh, you have these stereotypes around the care of corals, whether they're LPS, SPS, softies. (gasps) Good Um, one. And that drives me crazy because it, you know, there are LPS softies that... Stonies. Stonies, yeah. uh, Stonies soft corals, uh, you know, whether the polyps are small or large, right? Like, it doesn't really dictate necessarily what environment they come from, what kind of type of situation they would thrive in. And even when you talk about soft corals, um, many soft corals that are considered low light, or you know, that regard high nutrient low light, yes, they may tolerate that. But um, you put some of those, you know, type of softies in a high light high flow environment. And it's a different coral, it'll thrive, you know, it'll, it'll, it'll be so, so then the question is, well, it's like, all right, you know, which do you think it actually prefers? You know, um, that's a excellent that coral.
1: point. The SPS and LPS small polyp stony, large polyp stony designations came from the aquarium hobby and it's just a generalization mm-hmm. and you know, what do you do about those corals in the middle of the range is a cyphastria. Is that a small polyp coral or is that a medium polyp coral? Leptocerus. I would say that's a small polyp coral, but that grows really low. Um, and the same thing when you said about the soft corals. When you're diving the reef, the only you know you'll find a lot more soft corals in the shallows and really bright water, and then you find you know a good amount in midwater. But once you get down deep, you might find a few saccophytes, but the only soft corals down there are non photosynthetic. Once you get down into mm-hmm. you know the really low light. Reef, um there's going to be photosynthetic stony corals but non-photosynthetic soft corals but that's a great point lps and sps is it's just a loose category very very well loose. and you see like
0: par recommendations for sps corals and par recommendations for lps corals and i i don't you know i don't quite understand that mm-hmm. um Again, I, I, I see the point of you can get away with spending less maybe in lighting for and flow for certain types of corals because maybe their range of tolerance is a lot larger. Mm-hmm. But if we're in the hobby and we're trying to grow these corals as well as possible and as nicely as possible, you know, I I think, you know, throw softies in high par, right? Like that's that's – to me, that doesn't make sense that you would make those recommendations, especially with LEDs, where you're not necessarily spending less money. You're you have the same set of lights, but you're adjusting the values in your little app, right? Mm-hmm. And like this is these are the recommended values for an LPS tank, and these are the recommended. You should put your violets to this and that percentage for SPS. And it's like that makes the most sense to me. Uh, you go scuba dive, or better yet, go snorkel because you go into a shallow environment. And I've seen lobophytes, sarcophytes in several feet of water. You know, just right there, just getting hammered by waves. Yeah, and they're they're am- amazingly large and beautiful. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's you know, why not replicate that?
1: Yeah, no, that that's an awesome point. I can't think of any other uh, great examples. But SPS and LPS really just that designation only works at the extremes. You know, and um, you know, I think can, uh, candy coral is a perfect example. I've seen that coral in three feet of water, I've seen it on a hundred feet. It grows very different, but it'll be the same strain, but it's also acclimated to those conditions. So, um, definitely be mindful of what you think SBS and LBS means. That was a and good I've one, seen, I didn't have that I've one on seen, my list. Uh, I've seen tabling acros like down a hundred feet, mm. right? So, anyway. All right. Well, one, since we're talking about SPS, Oh my God. I just want to bang my head against the wall when people are waiting like three to six months, a to add corals to their reef, B to add SPS to their reef. And I guess it's kind of a two-parter, you know, let's just start with, uh, people should be cycling their tanks with corals and not fish. What do you say about that?
0: I agree wholeheartedly. Um, you know, it seems rather cruel to use like a, a fish to, to get the bacterial thing going in a, an aquarium. Um, whereas, and, and, you know, obviously fish waste and all of that has mm-hmm. bacteria in it uh, and you've got bacteria in a bottle these days. But a coral is an organism that is farming, you know, uh, dinoflagellates in its tissues that require fuel And it's usually on a little piece of rock or something that's loaded with bacteria and other microorganisms. Um, It doesn't care about, you know, how mature your tank is. It's, to me, you know, some sacrificial frags is the better way to go and actually contributes to the jump-starting of that uh, biological you know, life cycle yep. or whatever you call it, the nitrifying cycle and everything else, mm-hmm. uh, You know, to me, it's akin to like adding fast growing plants to a freshwater aquarium to get it going, you know? Yeah. Versus like, I'm going to burn this fish's
1: gills with ammonia and hope he makes it, you know? That just... So that's a great point, you know? I think it's safe to say that The roots of the saltwater aquarium hobby started in the freshwater world, right? Mm -hmm. That's what you would do. It's supernatural to take everything you know about freshwater. Let's rewind it to the 1950s, 1960s. You would just apply the same principles of freshwater to your saltwater tank and proceed from there. But man, it's been like 70 years of saltwater aquarium keeping and no one has ever explained to me any mechanism by which Uh, a coral can be affected by low levels of ammonia or nitrate so just to get a little nerdy on on folks uh, ammonia and nitrite interferes with uh, hemoglobin's ability to absorb oxygen and that's what burns the gills of fish and keeps them from being able to breathe but corals don't rely on blood they don't have blood they don't have hemoglobin so as far as I can tell I mean, obviously, a certain level of ammonia they're not going to be happy with, but you're usually feeding the fish a ton of food, not the corals a ton of food. And like you said, they're a self-contained little micro-ecosystem with all kinds of bacteria uh, on and inside of them and their bases. And, yeah, cycling tanks with fish is just, that should become an archaic practice.
0: Well, and when you take somebody that waits, you know, three weeks to fill up their 200 gallon tank with their 20 gallon per day RO unit, and then they put dead rock in it, and then they put some fish in it, and then they wait, you know, half a century before they put a <laughs> coral in. It's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It just, uh, there's so much wrong in that, <laughs> in my opinion.
1: I get it that, you know, it's it's natural for the, ho- the hobbyists and, and stores to have people go slowly and proceed slowly, um, but one i've set up a bunch of tanks here in the reef uh, builder studio lately and man the only thing that slows me down putting corals in there is figuring out exactly where i want them i will always start out with what i call indicator coral a canary in the coal mine with good polyp extension um, duncan's one of my favorites um, any kind of again sacrificial hammer coral is also another good one because they have such large polyps you can just kind of judge the the well-being of the tank by their polyp extension. Um, But if you add a bunch of corals at once, that is akin to literally adding live rock to your aquarium aquascape, right? You know, even Mm -hmm. the poop from the coral is just going to be like little squirts of bacterial diversity and microbial diversity. That's going to get your tank started in a way that adding fish won't, not to mention, they're not going to have nearly the same impact on your aquarium. If you want to wait a long time to cycle your tank, do it with corals. Don't do Mm -hmm. it with fish. Yeah, it's
0: funny too. Um, when people have had ick problems and they're uh, they have to go fallow on the reef, right? They take all their fish out. Mm-hmm. They're like, "What am I going to do with my corals?" Like I've seen that question posted on the internet, and I'm like, "Your tanks can be fine without fish. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's uh, there's plenty going on in there." Um, yeah, I, I find that interesting. I, and even if you're just getting into it and you don't have like another tank to pull some, you know, as you put a canary in a coal mine, corals. I mean, the sacrificial cheap, fast growing corals, right? Like they're not expensive. There's usually somebody that can, you know, is trying to get rid of something that you can take a few frags of throwing in there. We're if you are talking corals don't...
1: here. Coral, coral, not zoanthids because zoanthids right. live in a toilet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and a few other corals too, but man, straight along those same lines, and I'm going to bring in like a great example that almost everybody's seen is like SPS corals, they don't care how old your tank is. Right? They do not care if it's an hour old or a year old. All they care about is that you can maintain the chemistry, right? That you can maintain your parameters. There is, I yeah. get it that people want to be cautious. Again, we're not like dogging people who take their time. We just want to point out these, these facts that like your, Coral doesn't care how old your tank is. It doesn't care. An Acropora does not care if coralline is growing in the tank.
0: Well, and I I get to some degree the uglies, as they call it, right? The phase where you go through maybe some diatoms and some other stuff. Um, those, those type of breakouts can irritate some corals, right? But I would rather be dealing with those with a competitor like corals mm-hmm. in my tank and whatever they bring along for the ride, right? I mean, you see it with people battling dinos, right? They're starting to add more diversity, and that helps – fix that, um, that lack of equilibrium that uh, lets dinos thrive, right? Mm-hmm. So again, um, yeah, there's some corals that are not gonna be too happy with a cyano outbreak and you might have to go in there with a turkey baster and clean them off and stuff, but there's plenty of corals that'll do just fine in that kind of environment and help, in my opinion, and this may be anecdotal, but help you along the journey of getting out of the ugly phase with your tank.
1: Yeah. Well, I, you know, I guess I'm privileged to have so many corals now I can set up a tank instantly. And the only the thing that slows me down the most is like, where do I want to put the corals? Um, but, you know, one great example of this whole issue of cycling reef tanks and SPS corals is like, you go to a reef show. Those are all instant aquariums. I get mm-hmm. that they're not feeding them. I get that they're not long term. But for three or four days, those corals look amazing. And there's no fish in there. <laughs> there's no fish in there to pollute the aquarium. Um, all right. Do you have another misconception you want to bring up? Um, this one
0: I think is now a little more, uh, I think people are are more knowledgeable on this one, but in the past, it was a common misconception and that was a protein skimmer sizing. I mean, Mm. one is a protein skimmer even necessary. That should be the first question sometimes based on, you know, how you set up your tank. But, um, you know, you, There's been a lot of examples of oversizing a skimmer. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, you see tank ratings for skimmers. Now you're starting to see the ratings be more driven towards the biological load, Mm -hmm. uh, which is good. Um, I think that really helps. I think Red um, Sea does a
1: good job on their Red Sea Reefer. They have, uh, you know, like a... What is it? Like, I just generalizing right like a 100 gallon sps tank a 250 200 gallon you know mixed reef tank and then like a 300 gallon you know fish only tank so that that's definitely the better way to do it
0: Tunzi was i think one of the first to do that with their skimmers i remember uh they would have recommendations based on uh load, um but Yeah, I mean, that one, I think, is a little more common. Somebody just getting into the hobby may not be aware of that. Um, But, you know, I would rather have an undersized skimmer than an oversized skimmer any day.
1: Um, Really? You wouldn't have a larger skimmer and just kind of reduce the air or reduce the flow? I know you did this for a while where you ran your skimmer like six hours a day or something. A long time ago, yeah. Um, I'd mean, i rather have a large skimmer. Per se, but I, I'd rather have an easy to use skimmer. Actually, I don't really care on the size. Yeah, a I, reliable no, one. I
0: haven't. I mean, the only DC power skimmer I've used is a Tunzi on a smaller tank. But, um, so I, you know, those are great because you can you have you have more levers to pull. But back in the AC skimmer days, um, we're still in those days. And, yeah. <laughs> oh my! My current tank runs an AC pump skimmer. Um, when the skim, when the skimmer was undersized, it skimmed consistently. Like it was always churning, and there was always something in the cup. Whereas oh, when I
1: see what you're getting at, yeah, yeah.
0: And when it's oversized, I would experience like these ebbs and flows. Mm. Um, I don't. I can't say one is better than the other, but uh, I like consistency. I like knowing like this many days I got to empty it, clean it, and um, I've had it where you know the skimmer does nothing, 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 and then boom, all of a sudden I don't know if the proteins in the water build up to a certain threshold and then all of a sudden it's able to produce enough foam to do something. But uh, in that regard, I find an undersized skimmer a little more manageable and I honestly don't notice a difference in terms of anything related to nitrates or uh, phosphates with the, you know,
1: Well, kind of getting back to our first point about reef aquariums are hard. If I set up a reef tank, man, I'm not turning on the protein skimmer or adding a protein skimmer for like a month. You want yeah. to let those nutrients build up, right? You have to feed the bacteria um, to 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 cycle your tank and everything. So, um,
0: same with dosing, right? I mean, people will start dosing and they don't really have much coral biomass yet to to account for that. Right. Um, you can get away with water changes for a very long time or even just, you know, might get by just without water changes for, for at least a month or two.
1: Yeah, no, you want to let it get dirty. I know, mean, I'll start out a reef tank without a skimmer or just don't turn it on. And then as things progress, I might uh, start using a little bit of carbon and then use a little bit of Pio pellets or use a little, a, a reactor. but reactor. Um, but yeah, and then there's definitely. I don't want to totally get on protein skimmers because I feel like we can save that for a full episode. But I've always had this um, uh, this concept of what I call low hanging proteins. Like there's some heavy proteins that are really easy to remove, and then you just have to work that much harder to get like the medium weight proteins, and then the lightest scum is it's uh, diminishing returns when it comes to protein skimming. All yeah, right. I agree. All right. Um, how about reef safe? Hmm. I think reef safe is about, is less useful than SPS and LPS designations. Reef safe does not mean what you think it means.
0: Yeah. What is reef safe? Like what it, what is the definition of it being reef safe? Right? Let me try. Okay. I would say
1: reef safe is something that's not going to pick at your corals, uh, not going to pick at your crustaceans, not going to pick on small fish but at its most elemental reef safe should mean it's not gonna eat actual coral, right? Mm. I would say things that are not reef safe absolutely would be butterfly fish and para fish. Cause you see people keeping orange spotted file fish in their reef tanks, but they eat, they literally eat coral. But you know, by the very definition of reef safe, you would say that an orange spotted filefish is not reef safe, right?
0: Well, and uh, what I've learned with angelfish, uh, the larger angelfish, right, is they they can be, um, in my experience, rather particular about what corals they like to eat. So, you know, you'll you can throw a regal angel into a, a reef tank, and it'll, in my experience, annihilate your zoanthids. Uh, probably go after your xenia. But that's it i mean i had lps clams and i mean everybody's experience varies with angelfish mm-hmm. um but uh you know the the best advice i ever got from uh, a, a, someone who was really into angelfish was uh, if you really love the fish enough you'll put it in your tank it'll eat what it eats you'll realize which corals you can and cannot keep and you just adjust course and now you have a nice reef tank with a more specific set of corals but with a really nice angelfish and I mean in a way that's still like it's reef safe for that reef, you know, for that particular reef aquarium.
1: It's so funny. In that you bring, you do I angelfish are my favorite, but I have tons of tangs because I cannot enjoy a reef tank when an angel fish is picking at one thing. I added a flame <laughs> angel fish to a 100 gallon tank with a huge variety of corals and it only picked on the Pocillopora and then like one Duncan. I had to take it up I just, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't let it be in there. Like picking on just a few of those corals, but you, you know, you're bringing up a great point and you know, a few fish that would be considered not reef safe that you can absolutely keep in a reef tank would be lionfish groupers, mm-hmm. tuskfish, you know, like most of those guys, they're not going to eat your. Uh, They're not going to eat your snails, they're not going to touch your corals, they won't look at anemones, they'll eat little fish, they'll eat little shrimp, Um, You know, tusk might toss some things around that aren't nailed down, but even some of the larger wrasses, right, they get, like, like say, um, oh, and it changes as they get bigger. I think a perfect example would be a a Lenardi wrasse. They're so small and beautiful. They're kind of like a feminist, but man, a full super male is going to get like 10, 12 inches with some you know, serious dentition to literally pick up a good medium sized coral to see what's underneath it.
0: Well, it's funny you say that about the tusk fish, right? Uh, for me, uh, that's a fish I've always wanted, um, but. I have a hard time accepting the risk of losing like cleanup crew, which sounds so funny because that should be way more sacrificial. Snails are cheap, right? Right. But that that's the one thing that keeps me hesitating. But when it comes to angels, uh, I really don't, I mean, I don't keep very rare, expensive name brand corals, but so I'm, I'm happy to adjust course with what kind of corals I keep for a, a fish that I really like. But, uh, When you start messing with like shrimp and snails, then I get kind of annoyed.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I guess it's safe to say that reef safe is a useful um, definition, but it's also very fluid, very much dependent on what kind of fish we're talking about and what kind of corals we're talking about. So- Well, um, it's, um, we said it with
0: the R-O-D-I, it's a blanket answer when really the solution is to dive into the particulars, right? Uh, is this fish reef safe? Well, that depends, right? Um, but uh, I, I people don't want to have answers in the particulars, right? They want to just have a blanket answer,
1: and that is the issue, man. That is really the issue at stake here. If you if you want just a a, a a silver bullet answer, this is going to apply to you know everything that we're talking about. Um, it's a a very broad generalization and reef safe is is definitely one of those words i'm just like is that really helping yeah all right uh along those same lines man i I, that people want to believe something it it just kills me when people say that spring ride damselfish eat flatworms or uh dragon face pipefish will eat you know red bugs to gas these acropora anus off of your uh, acroporas and i just find that simply untrue man i have com- you know just like non non-damaging flatworms on some lps corals in my 100 gallon tank i got eight spring ride damsel fish in there man they don't go anywhere near the turbine area that actually has some flatworms on it and, and and i know that some races will will definitely do it um some wrasses can be trained to do it, right? If you're blasting flatworms and kind of showing them that there's a little bit food bits on the coral, some of them can be trained, but man, there's a whole bunch of information I was like, "Oh, you have this problem? Just buy this fish."
0: I saw somebody posting about a blenny that eats aptasia.
1: Yeah, so the Molly Miller blenny, the Molly Miller blenny is one of those hidden secrets that eats aptasia it's a blenny that eats aptasia i've personally never had one in my own tanks i've kept them at aquarium stores and yeah sure enough they're not going to eat like your shine aptasia but they're like little ones that you know they don't have the dentition to like get into the rock but if there's a small aptasia just kind of in plain sight yeah they'll they'll definitely eat them and there's there's a lot of uncommon knowledge like that but there's also more urban legends about fish that are supposed to do something that actually don't do that
0: I've always had the question of, you know, especially when it comes to fish, if they'll eat Aptasia, what else will they
1: eat, right? Um, That's an excellent point. Um, I think a great example for that is the file uh, filefish, right? Yeah. So wild specimens, I've had some wild ones, ate the hell out of Aptasia, and you know, then got a liking for zoanthids. But one thing where aquaculture really steps in is I believe biota trains their bristletail filefish on, on Aptasia. And then they've never seen anything else besides prepared foods. And you put those guys in an aquarium. I think it's really rare that those guys will, will pick on something else. Not, not out of the question, but you know, I have one that, that, that surfs back and forth, be over the, in the back partition of one of my aquariums. He goes back there, eats Aptasia swims over to the main display and needs some more Aptasia. It's really cool.
0: Yeah. The, uh, I remember doing, um behind the scenes tour at the georgia aquarium and uh they had a aptasia problem and they put a bunch of raccoon butterfly fish in which you know uh, at the time backfired on them because then they found that it was eating some other things as well and they were trying to catch them and get them out um and that just to me it's like well if you eat you know an idarian like i mean this it, yeah i mean they can have their preferences right just like the regal angel you know, we eat my zoanthas, but not really touch any fleshy LPS or anything like that. But, um, when, especially when it's a fish that you're using to target a pest, I'm always like, well, you know, they're omnivorous and they, they, it might just be, it might, they're not going to exclusively
1: eat that. Right. I'm a, Um, I'm a big critic of aquaculture. I feel like they should be doing more to make better fish. And, uh, that's a whole nother session, but this is one of those cases that, you know, if you, if you raise the bristle tail file fish in captivity, it's never seen any other critter It's never grazed on the reef and have the buffet of different food items available to it. Um, and you've fed it prepared foods and you've presented it with Aptasia, man, those fish are going to hit the aquarium being a pretty model citizen. So that's a question
0: for you. Um, this is something I've heard a lot and I've, I've been skeptical of. Um, uh, fish that are known to eat corals but are captive bred and captive raised. I often hear them being as described as like, oh well those are reef safe, right? These captive bred Singapore angels have been raised on pellets and uh, they're reef safe and they're not going to eat your corals like the wild ones do. Um, I'm skeptical of that oh man that's a tough but i be- have no proof right i've never kept oh, that's uh, a toughie uh,
1: because on my end like i prioritize the the lusciousness and vitality of my corals above all else right that's right. why I have a dedicated fish tank where i can do whatever i want fishy wise over there and if there's a flame angel that's picking on two out of a hundred corals in a reef tank he's out you know um so Man, I'm not really sure that Singapore angels actually eat corals in the wild. I've observed them quite a bit. I would ex- you know corals don't taste good, you know, unless you're really like mm-hmm. made for eating that kind of food. Um there's just so much better food to have on a natural reef. Um so I can't really comment on the Singapore angels, but I just I just I don't know. I don't think Singapore angels get enough credit first of all. That's <laughs> um, yeah, a
0: fish I've always wanted to keep, but um it's, you know, I've, I've been worried about keeping that one. i the you know, there's, there's sacrificing some corals, but I, I've heard some scary stories with Singapore's, um, um and I like to keep like tridacnids and
1: stuff. So I'd be a little worried. Tridacnids are giant clams for the uninitiated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's talking that old school talk, tridacnids. Um, all right, here's one, here's one of my favorites. I don't want to get that, that RAS because it needs sand and my tank has bare bottom. Hmm, I've fallen for that one. First of all, fairy wrasses, flasher wrasses, six lines, four lines, cleaner wrasses, they don't sleep under the sand. They go find a rock and go underneath it and you know, just go find a nook. Um, leopard wrasses, anampses, including femininists, including the Linardi wrasses, um, they like to sleep in the in the sand. And then there's a whole nother category of razor asses that just, uh, Navaculops and Xerictus, they are just highly adapted, laterally flattened fish that just go deep in the sand. These are the videos you've seen of, uh, dolphins using echolocation to mm-hmm. you know, locate fish underneath the sand. Those are the, the kind of races that, you know, it'd be kind of cruel to keep them away from their natural environment, which is really sand diving. Um, I don't cater to sissy fishes. You know, I, like I said, when my when I was talking about my mangrove tank. I grow my mangroves in uh, two little fishies, refugite, a deep, deep, deep layer. And then I put some heavy stones on top of that specifically. So my leopard wrasse wouldn't be diving into it and spreading the sand all over the place. You know what? I've had all kinds of leopard wrasses and anamces and they'll go find a rock, man. They'll go find a spot they'll go hide over there. Um, The wrasses don't need the sand. I mean, you're talking about, you're literally talking about a security blanket.
0: I have fallen for that one. Um, what fish was it? I think partly, uh, leopard dress. Uh, I, I, I had it in a bare bottom tank and I, you know, felt the need to put a Tupperware in there with sand. Right. Um, I, I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't he, say you
1: fell for it. You know, that's you're, you're just trying to give the animal well, the yeah. best it can. But I just, I just push back against people who say, Oh, I have a bare bottom tank. Therefore I can't keep all these rasses, And I'm like, most rasses do not sleep under the sand. Once, once yeah. again, you need to dive, drill down to what it is you're trying to do, what you're trying to keep, uh, you know, to find out some of these uh, secondary and tertiary details.
0: Well, it's similar to, you know, you think about a lot of the fish that we keep are, are surface grazers, right? Um, what are you thinking of? And eventually, huh?
1: what are you thinking of, sur- surface grazers?
0: uh i'll use the same example a regal angel right uh if anyone's ever brought in a a regal angel um it's there's always it's fun because um training them to eat you use you know clams on the half shell and then maybe you put other kinds of food in the clam shells because they are used to grazing off of a surface and uh there's pellet food floating around in the water and it doesn't register in their brain And uh, the one I kept, for example, was like that for like a year, and then one day it just like maybe it was just watching all the other fish. It was like, you know what? What the hell? And it just started eating pellets out of the water column. But it's that same kind of concept of you know maybe we need to give fish a little more credit in their adaptability, right? Um, Whether it be a ras
1: needing sand or
0: preach. You know, (laughs)
1: they'll they'll figure it out. (laughs) You know what I find funny too is like when you get uh, angelfish. And they first learn how to eat food from the column. They still like twitch their head really hard, like they're ripping yeah. something off, and and it takes yep. a really long time for them to stop doing that. But yeah, I, I really be- believe in not coddling aquarium fish. Present them with flake, present them with pellets, present them with frozen food. They don't have to have live food, but man, I'm a big I'm a big flake and pellet feeder, and uh, to me, once a fish is eating flake or pellets it's it's like home free like a tricky fish like a regal angel fish
0: yeah agreed
1: um all right i'm I'm just going down my list here do you have any uh misconceptions in mind i got a i got got a big old list here
0: no i think yours are better um one like one that I always find amusing is this war on dino dinos right and I went
1: through the dinoflagellate battle and what do you mean I would argue war on dinos like I really have to claim ignorance here. I don't know if it's because I'm like in the mountains in the center of the country and I don't have the spores to inoculate my tanks with that but i I don't think I've ever experienced anything approaching what people are talking about dinoflagellates so I just I can't relate. Yeah. I'll, so I my
0: theory is there is a divide here between old school reefers who have um just experienced dinos in the ugly phase of a setup tank right um and those that have battled what's going on now and I was you know you'll you'll get the advice oh, just put you know some plastic on your tank blackout your tank for 3 days end of story problem solved um or uh, do some water changes, or you know, you'll know, you get like this dismissive advice from people that have been in the hobby for a very long time. And I was the same way. And then I got nailed by these dinos. And I mean, I, I can't explain it. Like I, I suddenly felt the sympathy of like, you know, this uptick in activity on the forums of people battling these things. And these things are persistent and will not go away. So I mean, what I've do you think a- is the
1: mis- misconception about dinoflagellates?
0: Um, Well, so I think there's a misconception that they are just a – that, you know, between veteran reef keepers trying to give advice to people that maybe haven't been in the hobby as long or – you know, see these posts and think that this is just a matter of some algal succession, like a diatom bloom, you just got to work it out. I, I, I definitely think they're missing the mark that there is something interesting going on with dinoflagellates in reef tanks these days. And there's obviously a trigger, there's something different. And you and I have talked about some of my theories on that. So that's one misconception where people who have not battled it uh, in the way that people recently have, think of it just as a, as a succession issue and, you know, it'll, you know, just do some simple, simple things and it'll go away. The other part that I find interesting is that, um, there's a vilification too, but, um, you know, I just feel like people should also remember that zooxanthellae are also dinoflagellates. And, uh, that goes a lot into my thinking about things, you know, where, um, you know, you have to you have to think about like my personal experience with temperature, right? Uh, was was interesting to me, uh, where the guy I saw on YouTube posted, hey, he noticed his nano tank was at an elevated temperature by accident, and the dinos went away. Um, that worked for me. It didn't work for everybody, um, but it just I drew a parallel of like, well, what happens when temperatures are elevated on the reef, right? Uh, what happens to the dinoflagellates inside of corals, mm-hmm. right? They get expelled um so is there a correlation there maybe not uh but um it's just interesting that you know there's this hatred for this thing it's like well there's another genus of that stuff growing in your coral
1: tissues you know so um, one thing one important thing i want people to know about dinoflagell- dinoflagellates in general is that they're not a plant they're, they're right. protist they're a, protist. They're an, yeah. a plant animal Animal, plant, so they can ingest stuff. Plant-like animals, and and they can grow photosynthetically. And so it's not another algae. And two, I would say probably more so than anything else over the last five years, that is one of the few things that has caused experienced reefers a lot of headache. Uh, You know, I get I get a lot of messages about. Various problems, but the only ones I get messages about from experienced reefers is dinoflagellates and again I can't I can't relate Um, But yeah, no like we we need to understand that. It's not just another species of algae. That's that's not that's not the jam
0: Yeah, and it's um, I mean the some of the plagues people are experiencing are extremely persistent which you know you're you're definitely battling something almost on a pathogenic level when they take over your tank versus just um, you know a diatom bloom or um, you know some of the, the harder to kill turf algaes or something like that it's yeah it's no, definitely there's,
1: and there's well fleshed out processes for dealing with cyano derbesia bryopsis enteromorpha. like we know how to handle that stuff and just Dinoflagellates is, is not another algae it's just a whole other group right. of, of creatures, and uh, they take a different approach, but yeah, I think I think uh, you know the temperature thing it's you' you're, you're, you're speeding up their metabolism, making them burn out, but also encouraging other things to take over you know that ecological role
0: I agree, yeah, tilting the scale right yeah. to to favor something that is easier
1: to battle, I guess Oh, I got a big one I've been saving a big one. I, I don't, I, I don't even know what my reaction is when people acclimate corals, I have <laughs> not acclimated a coral in like 15 or 20 years when I, again, it's one, it's like, I, I, acclimated, I did everything we were told to do, like freshwater fish, and then saltwater fish and acclimated my corals. And then, you know, I, I, I got a degree in Marine science. and learned more about how corals actually work. And I'm like, this is dumb. Acclimating corals demonstrates a fundamental misunderstanding of how corals actually work. It kind of goes back to um, what we're just saying as far as cycling your tank, right? Corals don't have blood. They don't have lungs. They don't respire. They rely on diffusion for all of their respiratory needs, you know, getting rid of CO2, Um, bringing in oxygen and getting rid of waste, um, you know, bringing minerals and nutrients that they need. So a coral is literally built to be a diffusing animal. It's self acclimating. It's, it's literally (laughs) self acclimating, you know, just think about it. Do you think when we're collecting corals on the reef, do you think we're acclimating them to be out of water for like an hour to three hours on their way back to the distribution center? Do you think they literally take the time to acclimate freshly caught wild corals that have been dry for an hour into their new systems? Do you think wholesalers acclimate thousands upon thousands of corals when they get a new shipment? Now, I do know that stores might, might acclimate corals because they might be dealing with a few dozen or like 50 or 100, but it, it's, they're self-acclimating. You know, and I, it's just, it's not that, you know, people want to give their, their aquarium animals the best, but the only thing you really should be acclimating are your clams, your crustaceans, crustaceans breed. Mm -hmm. They have a circulatory system. So if you put them into a new environment, they're going to be shocked. If it's, you know, drastically different, I do not acclimate fish. I buy locally, but I will absolutely acclimate fish that i get in the mail but i will take it to the next level i'm not floating fish i'm not dripping fish i'm literally measuring the temperature measuring the ph exchanging water until it gets close enough you know usually within you know one degree and then 0.1 ph you know but i'm paying attention to the details
0: i I worry about salinity um not so much for corals but you know when it comes to acclimating fish uh inverts um you know echinoderms, and shrimp and all that I worry mostly about salinity. I don't worry at all about temperature. Mm-hmm. Um, again, go scuba dive or snorkel, and you'll swim through several different gradients of temperature. And a tide will come Peenocline in, and the temperature will
1: change. A yeah, peak nocline for density, a thermocline for temperature. Like you literally can be swimming through open ocean water and you'll hit a, you know, a a cold layer or a warm layer and you see fish swimmer all through it. They don't care.
0: (laughs) Well, it's funny when you see people with controllers and uh, they keep their temperature like fluctuating less than like half a degree. So the relays and their controllers are like on off, on off, on off to maintain this perfectly flat line of a temperature. That doesn't happen on a reef, you know. That's <laughs> a reef doesn't stay a steady seventy-eight degrees. That
1: segues, So I don't worry about that. That segues perfectly into uh, another misconception about stability. Absolutely, for sure. On a very long timeline, you want stability, right? You want you know a, a pH range. You want an alkalinity range. You want a temperature range. But just just like what you said you don't see corals bleaching at high latitudes do ya? those high latitudes actually experience more variation seasonally like a much higher range all the bleaching that's happened on the great barrier reef is only happening on the north end granted that's closer to the equator so it's getting a little bit more insulation but i was diving great barrier reef it was 69 degrees mm-hmm. i was sur- i was wearing an eight millimeter wetsuit surrounded by clams Acropora and emperor angelfish. I I was I was dumbfounded. I was like, what the hell? (laughs) Like literally looking around kept checking my you know, uh, my uh, dive computer. I'm like, how is it 69 degrees? It's 69 degrees. I'm looking around how where's How are you guys doing this? Yeah, they, they don't care. But if you keep things too stable, if you have a little perturbation, you're gonna have some issues
0: yeah i I feel that way too. I feel like um um more fluctu more minor fluctuations actually produces a hardier reef setup, whereas people who keep everything absolutely perfect preach, preach brother you, know, Mark. you preach. there's more of a reaction to change, right? Yeah. I, I so again, there's no I don't have proof of that, but that's always you been do a have proof of that. you longstanding that theory.
1: There's a lot of fish and corals that live near the shoreline where they experience extreme tidal differences every four hour, every six hours, four times a day. Four times a day. Um, Some of the coral farms are literally located for the shallow water stuff. They're literally located in an area that's easier to access. It's going to have. Really, it's going to be very close to shore. It's going to have extreme tidal fluctuation, both in flow, temperature, salinity. And if there's a huge rain, oh my God, Bali's you know yeah, rainforest. you are going to bring that up. It's, yeah. it's hyper tropical. How much water do you think runs? Fresh water runs off. You know, so you're like going through all these this ritual to acclimate your corals. Like, stop it. Pay attention to more important things. <laughs> um But yeah, you know, I, I do want to point out, like, on a long timeline, stability is super important. But if my alkalinity spikes for some reason, I'm doing everything in my power to bring it down immediately. Right? I don't have those issues. But on the same on the same note, if like you know, uh, let's just say I ran out of buffer or something in my uh, dosing pump, and I test my water, and my alkalinity just hit like four or six. I will not hesitate to give it a few glugs of buffer, you know, totally, let's say up to a liter of buffer for 500 gallons of water, you know, over the course of a few hours to bring it up to nine or 10 of that day. You know? Um, yeah. Same thing with calcium. Yeah,
0: I mean, I, I agree not dumping it all too quickly in the sense that you'll get a lot of precipitation or H- huge pH spike. A, yeah, avoid that pH spike. But. Um, I mean, I had this happen this week. Uh, hmm. I switched uh, two parts.
1: Oh, and, why uh, did you switch
0: two parts? Why? Yeah, why? Because <laughs> uh, the one I like, I have a hard time sourcing. Oh, um, is it ESV? Uh, e- yeah, ESV. God, that's
1: the classic. Uh, I've heard that from a few people lately. That ESV has been a little bit harder to source. Bob, so I, I switched Bob, to, back to well. those elements.
0: I know. I That's been my tried and true for decades um, when I've used two-part. But So I, I gave Brightwell a try knowing it's a little more concentrated. So I, I just eyeballed mathed it. Right? Like, <laughs> oh, okay. I did use a, a reef online calculator. Like, well, if I'm dosing this many milliliters of ESV, that's the equivalent of this many milliliters of um, Brightwell. and mm-hmm. um, the story, maybe I got my tank volume... Not right, because you know you, you try to rough that with like rock and sand and you know how many how many gallons really is. My, so what happened? You know, so so anyway, my alkalinity dropped to four and a half. I was like, all right, I got to go correct that. But I'm correcting that in 24 hours. Right. Um, and the nice thing with a controller is I just set it to a higher value nice thing for about the 24 a hour period.
1: pump, a smart dosing Sorry. Pump. Yeah, that's but what I meant. You can use a controller with a super loud grindy stepper motor dosing pump. I'll use just a smart dosing pump and I will tell it to dose hundred mLs of buffer in an hour.
0: Yeah, so that, that's what I did. is I, I wasn't going to do it over like several days. I'm like, no, 24 hours is fine, you know?
1: <laughs> I will do it over um, an hour.
0: Yeah, I, I I could, but I'm not actively watching my pH, so I was like, Yeah, I guess
1: you know. I think it maybe comes from having a bunch of tanks and being a little bit more maverick with my dosing. I have dosed too much calcium. You know what happens? acropolyp extension pulls in for a little bit. They're over it in like yeah. a couple hours. <laughs> I, again, I, stability is it's hyper important over the long range, but we should not put this incredibly tight range on a lot of different aquarium parameters like it's a religion, you know? Um, yeah, no, that was our... That was a- well, to, to tie that to the temperature thing,
0: uh, when, I, when other people started trying the elevated temperature with dinos, I was surprised how many people gave feedback like, I, I stopped doing this within three days because my corals were pissed off that the temperature was 82 degrees. And I was like, that just is odd to me that your corals are, you know, looking stressed at 82 degrees Fahrenheit. Mm-hmm. Um, when our tanks used to be that hot when we used to cook them with metal halides, right? Yeah, 80 um, degrees
1: used to be the low.
0: But maybe it's like what you said, you know, maybe these tanks are kept in such a tight uh, parameter range that, you know, all of a sudden going to 82 is like these corals are like, what the hell's going on? Right. Versus uh, maybe in my tank, they're like, yeah, okay, let's go for this ride. Let's see what happens. Here's a fun
1: fact for you. Fast growing SPS stony corals occur in shallow water of tropical regions. Shallow water tends to be a lot warmer and calcification speeds up in higher temperatures so if you're trying to grow sps stony corals you should be aiming for about 80 plus degrees that's that's a and fact maybe, of of chemistry like you know that's why uh lime builds up in your pumps where there's a heat source or it builds up and crusts right. up on your heater where there's a heat source those same chemical physical properties are, are, are happening inside your corals. If you want to grow stony corals faster, you might be, you know, you bump your pH up to 8.5, run the temperature up to 85. It might be really hard to keep up with the whole suite of trace elements and minerals that they need at that temperature. But at the very least, a real acro tank should be about 80 plus.
0: Well, yeah, that, that was what was so weird to me that people had a negative reaction. I mean, tanks used to be hot in the summertime, you know, Re- I remember people would be like, oh, what's your reef tank? Oh, in the summer, it's this temperature in the winter, it's that temperature. You know, like that was a very common response. So, um, and maybe we had less issues with dinos before because our tanks, unfor- mm-hmm. you know, ran hotter in spite of us. Right. Because we are, our lighting was, was, uh, was a lot more, uh, of a heat source. I don't yeah. know.
1: No, I mean, these, these are I'm all excellent points. We're, we're literally not trying to break all of your commandments of reefing with this entire conversation. Right. We're just asking you to, uh, examine what it is that you're doing. Yes. You should stop acclimating. Ask why like, that's just silly. <laughs> that's just silly. But, um, I only have a couple more, you know, uh, porosity. I, it, it, I, I, I really am like, just kind of my jaw hits the the floor when I see people with established reef tanks, adding media blocks to their sump.
0: Hmm, the ceramic doesn't matter matter what it is, bio pure or whatever. Yeah, it was like your tank is fine. You know, I've always well, I never understood biological media in a reef tank period. Uh, Yeah. The corals uh, and your whole whole tank is
1: biological media. (laughs) The voice of <laughs> Jeff Goldblum flows through me. Nature will find a way. Bacteria will find a way. But it's it just I am just flabbergasted is the ap- appropriate word when people have an established tank, an established fish population, and they add biomedia to their sump. All you're doing is adding a place for more detritus to build up, slowing down the water flow in places where it probably should be faster. And I I judge the usefulness of almost everything we do on our reef tanks based on whether or not I can look at a reef tank and determine whether someone has a high alkalinity, if they're, you know, have enough nutrients, if they're dosing, you know, a proper balance of amino acids, um, if they have, you know, good water flow in the aquarium, but you cannot look at an aquarium and say oh man this reef tank looks like it's got a ton of porosity i need more porosity in my reef tank i'm gonna add some bio blocks media blocks in my sump like what are you doing yeah i've always i've always questioned that one i know there's some
0: theory that um because they're so porous in nature that you're creating an anoxic zone for denitrifying bacteria but i've always thought that they just clog up anyway uh, right. eventually with detritus and um you know if you've got high nitrates in a reef tank you know there's there's a, a bio block ain't gonna in my opinion fix it and you gotta look at like why that is because um these days i feel like nitrates are relatively easy to take care of in a reef easier tank. than i ever.
1: mean man you have a companies yeah brightwell makes neonitro, nitro neo so you can add them to your tank that was right. my last big hurdle here at the reef builder studio i thought you know i'm feeding the corals a little bit feeding the fish a little bit got a little bit of algae growth on the glass okay it must have nutrients but then when the Hannah checker came out the low range one I had .00 on the 600 gallon system .05 on my flagship reef, and .17 parts per million on the tank that was doing the best. And I'm like, okay, that's. I mean, that's the last thing I really need to do here at the studio was just feed my tanks a lot more. So yeah, having high nitrates. You know, you know what I'm gonna blame for that? Frozen food. <laughs> mm-hmm. Frozen food again, almost everything we're talking about, right? Whether it's acclimating your corals or providing more porosity, or um, keeping your tank hyper stable, these are all like lumped into this folder of trying to give your tank the best. But if you think about raising a child, you give them all the best and you never give them any rough edges to scratch themselves onto, they're going to be a spoiled little brat and totally sheltered and not going to learn anything. So similar with the with the reef tank, you know, you wouldn't feed your child steak and seafood three times a day, right? You're not going to keep your child in a hyperbaric, you know, climate controlled bubble their entire lives, they have to learn um, in some ways, how to handle some of the extremes of of everything that we're talking about. I think I, I have a very
0: dissenting opinion about fish feeding uh, and coral feeding that we could definitely dive into in another video. But yeah, you know, there is a general sense of, yeah, I mean, if you've got nutrient issues, you know, maybe you're if your bio load's high, that's one thing, but maybe look at how much you're feeding the
1: tank. That's what right? I'm saying, and though. But you're it's, you know how hard it's gonna be to skyrocket your nitrates and phosphates if you're feeding flake food. That's just it's like almost oh, quasi. It's economically impossible. Do you know how much buckets of flake food you'd have to have? But with frozen food, it's so concentrated. Concentrated. Not only are you fattening up your fish from the inside, but so much of that goes undigested, goes straight into your water cap, water quality.
0: Yeah, I've never been much. I mean, I I like frozen food here and there as a treat, but uh, um, I I swear by just pellets and flake. And it's just funny, you know. You're going to feed your. I, I nothing wrong with wanting the best for your fish, but it's funny to see people like feed their reef tank this diverse, you know, like you said, steak and mashed potato meal every night, Twice and then, a day. like their dog, their dog gets like the same
1: kibble, right. every night. You know, <laughs> uh, you know it, again, it, it's just, we want the best for our aquariums, but frozen food should be three things. One, it should be for conditioning new fish. They've had a long ride. They've lost a lot of weight. They need to settle into the aquarium. New fish, conditioning fish for breeding, right? This should be mm-hmm. for, you know, when you really need to get a high quality eggs, if you're a breeder, you know who you are. That's when you feed frozen food all the time. And three, as part of a balanced diet <laughs> of flakes and pellets and grazing the aquarium and, you know, whatever they can find yeah, breeding within the, the aquarium.
0: Yeah, I've, you know out of sheer laziness i've been uh, uh most 95 90 some some sometimes it's like 99 percent of the time i just feed pellets and food. right right there with your brother um, knock on wood because i'm probably you know this is going to curse me somehow but i have never full confession i've never had a tang with lateral line issues ever in the hobby i um, have
1: when i'm specifically treating a zebra soma purple tang for ick. And with copper for a while, or in cases where I added just a little bit too much carbon to the tank. (laughs) Yeah, but those are very well explainable. But yeah, I'm right there with you. You know, I think the first food that really turned me onto that was New Life Spectrum. Man, I have grown some big old fat fish on ninety nine point nine nine percent New Life Spectrum
0: choice for me. Yep. That's all. That's what I predominantly use. I've started trying some other pellets to mix in just cause why not? But I mean, the regal angel I had for, you know, more than a decade, um, he, he was, I mean, he was raised on pellets, right? Um, and sure, somebody's thinking, well, he would have lived 20 years if I had, you know, fed, you know, frozen food He would or have lived I years but
1: if you fed him exclusively frozen food. I love how this whole misconception yeah. thing is just now like we're focusing on overfeeding. <laughs> but yeah, he would have lived yeah, we half could as long if you fed him exclusively <laughs> frozen food because he would have been a super fat boy. Um, but we want to save some of this material for a future episode on specifically nutrition. But yeah, again, I I, I don't wanna be chastising anyone for doing any one of these particular things. Um, It just really goes into people, you know, killing their aquarium with kindness.
0: Yeah, I mean, they want the best and if you can, you know, if you wanna use the best of the best of the best for everything because you're passionate and you care and that's, there's more power to you. That's great. Um, but to your point, you know, it's important to question some of that stuff and also not to chastise people that maybe do it a little differently. Yeah. I am, um, I'm,
1: I've been working on that my entire life. <laughs> I'm kind of bad at being like, no, you're doing it wrong. Stop it. <laughs> I, I'm
0: always intrigued, right? When like the guy that runs his tank on tap water and the tank's phenomenal, you're always like, okay, hold on, what's going on here? I, like I, I'm always fascinated, right? Like I, in one of the previous episodes, I talked about, you know, the ultimate flex for me would always be like, oh, what kind of skimmer are you run? Like, oh yeah, that thing broke like a year yes. ago, and
1: you're like, oh okay, you know, cool, the, interesting. The skimmer really helps with the balance of the tank, but there's something to be said when there's a perfect equilibrium or, you know, an ideal equilibrium between whatever organics are building up in the aquarium and not having a protein skimmer.
0: I know we're running long, but there's one I wanted to ask you about your opinion on is pH. Oh, what about pH? Um, Well, elevated pH definitely improves coral Mm -hmm. growth. Um, Do you think people are Going a little crazy on pH now with all the carbon dioxide absorption media. I don't think. And, I don't think um, soda lime is the answer. Uh, or like pull your air in from outside. Tapping a hole for your air, like for your airline, for your skimmer to the outside world. Which I, I mean, I I don't know. I I, I, I do think. You
1: know, here, here's the thing, like. Again, pH and calcification could be a whole session overall, where we'll probably revisit that. But it, there's kind of a catch 22. And I've experienced this too. And I, I have I'm in my own personal pH club of one of I call it uh, club 8.5. And when, when I when I scratch 8.5 with the tank full of corals, you can easily 8.5, you hit 8.5 on a daily when you don't really have any corals in there. But it's like a race car, you're driving it faster. And so it makes it so much harder to keep up with mineral demands. It makes it so much harder to keep up with nutrition. It makes it you know, it's that much more of a challenge to supply amino acids and just all the things that the corals need. So when it comes to so- obviously you need to dive into the details. If you're growing and, and and soft corals, who cares <laughs> who cares about the ph yeah. if you're growing lps and euphilia uh you know maybe a little bit of an effect but if you're growing acros and you're farming acros you are wasting your time if you're not at least hitting 8.3 8.1 to 8.3
0: that's a good point i guess if you were in the f- coral farming business uh that'd be one thing i just for me i've had you know I'll, I've had SPS dominant tanks. I've had you know all kinds of flavor of tanks, and um, especially when I was running calcium reactors, you know I was always in the 7.9, 8.0 range on the reef. If I, if, if if reef I wake and up
1: and my pH is that low, I will shed a tear. <laughs> I've just never had no, problems. No, you're, you're then, not uh, wrong. There's something to be said for not giving a hoot, and you know what I meant to say: <laughs> for not giving a yeah. hoot there's something to be said for not growing your corals fast right having an aquascape kind of slowly evolving right like all right my nanotank up front i never dose it i have no idea what the ph is it's had two water changes it went one year without a water change and it's had one second water change since then those corals grow it grows just fine yeah. Right, there's some acanth actual acans in there. There's two euphilias, some green star polyp, a couple soft corals. I, I don't care what the chemistry is, I literally don't care what the pH is. Right, so if you're you know if you want your exhibit, your display to kind of stay the same, don't worry about pH, don't worry about turbocharging uh, uh, growth. Because on a long enough timeline, you're just gonna have to manage it, right? You're gonna have to restart your coral, you're gonna have to do some fragging, you're gonna have to do something with all those frags, you're gonna have to supply so much more to the tank. Um, but yeah, I don't think I think that what you're trying to get at is that, that that's that it, uh, exceedingly large, high pH is not for everyone.
0: Yeah, and just the number chasing thing. Um, to your point, if you're if you're trying to squeeze every little drop out of growth, right? Uh, I guess it makes sense. Um, but uh, you know, I, honestly, when I ran a calcium reactor, I never tested anything. Uh, I, I knew what the pH was on my calcium reactor, so I knew it was running properly. Once I started uh, switch back to dosing, I do once a month test my alkalinity
1: once a just month just to make sure. Oh my lordy.
0: Well, unless I see, unless I see the coral, I'm a, I'm big on, I know you, I know you
1: observation, man, that's key. All right. Well, I think we're, we're, uh, bifurcating into a bunch of different topics. Do you have any, um, closing statements about misconceptions? So we don't dabble into like three different future episodes at the end of this one.
0: Yeah, no, I, um, I don't want it to be, I don't want anybody to interpret this as, um cynical or, uh, you know, chastisey or anything like that. You know, I, I just, um, I, it's good. It's good when you get advice to understand the why behind it. Um, and I think it's important to dive into the particulars, right? Um, don't look at some guy running a tap water tank and think he's doing it wrong because you don't know what his water quality is like. Um, and, uh, you know, if, when it comes to fish feeding or anything like that, like, I hate when people get preachy about it. And and you could argue that we're being preachy, but I'm more talking about the people that- It's um,
1: not preachy when we're telling people to give an extra level of consideration to what they're doing and why they're doing that. We're not saying don't do this, except for choral acclimation. There's absolutely no reason, (laughs) except for choral (laughs) acclimation. But yeah, we're just urging. This is a hobby. It's cerebral. It's multidimensional. This is why we're here to think about this stuff, to to understand right. this stuff, and don't just go repeating and re- you know what someone else said or repeating what someone else did. Just think and, and, and be critical about everything that you are personally doing. Great, very cool. Perfect well, way on way that way. note, um, Mark. Thank you so much for another awesome session of Reef Therapy. I feel a little bit lighter every time we get some of these things off our chests and, uh, yeah, I hope uh, the viewers and the listeners have found this informative and uh, very appreciative of everyone tuning in.
0: Yeah. I look forward to the comments. I'm sure there'll be some folks with their own, uh, ideas of some misconceptions, or maybe they're doing some things that, you know, they feel are not common that other people are doing. Um, and that'll be fun to read. So, um, but yeah, thanks, Jake. This was fun.
1: Yeah, I had a few more items on my uh, list, but we're already running long. So if you have some uh, major misconceptions you want to uh, bring to light, make sure to pop those down in the comments of the YouTube video. I know you can't really do that in the podcast format, but uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. Make sure to catch us on your favorite podcatcher, and we'll catch you guys for another session of retherapy next week. All right, Later. see you guys.